Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, January 7th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Y-Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. So we haven't recorded one of these in almost two weeks now, so we have a lot to talk about uh, as we were on break and probably saw and did a bunch of things. Uh, But before we get to that, we usually end up talking about the Golden Globe uh, winners and losers. Uh, We have so much going on this week on the podcast. We have so many great podcasts in the work that we we just don't have time for a news episode. So I thought I would throw that into the water cooler here before we get started pretty quickly. Um, I was one of the few people on the staff that watched the Golden Globes. Um, I didn't get to see the opening, so I didn't get to see any like the, you know, the monologue and jokes kind of thing. Uh, I am happy that uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse won Best Animated, and maybe that is a good sign for the Oscars. Um I'm happy uh, Christian Bale uh, won for his transformative appearance in uh, Vice and uh, thanking Satan for inspiration was, I I think, hilarious. Um, Roma won Best Foreign Film and Alfonso won Best Director. I think we can all be on board for those. Uh, Rami Malek won Best Actor for Bohemian Rhapsody. I know a lot of people were on Twitter, at least, were kind of making fun of that when it happened. And then moments later... Bohemian Rhapsody won for uh, Best Picture of the Year Dramatic. Um, I actually like Rami Malek's performance in that movie. I don't think the movie is worthy of even being nominated for Best Picture. But uh, I, I don't know. I can kind of get behind the the, the, the best, best Actor performance. Uh, what do you guys – what were your thoughts on the Golden Globes? They're irrelevant. They stink. We should, not, <laughs> we should stop watching them, stop covering them, and stop caring. That's what we should do, Peter. <laughs> okay, Jacob, you, you did not watch them. You were trying to sleep. Uh, let's talk to someone who watched them. Uh, ben, you covered it for the site. 
I did, and I actually kind of share Jacob's thoughts about the whole thing because, like, you know, the thing about the Golden Globes that I, I just want to present for people who may not be aware is that all of these winners are voted on by less than 100 people, and they're not even they're it's the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. So, like, the it, it's actually awards, 90 film critics, international film critics. Uh, it doesn't include anybody from the United States. I think it includes some people from Canada. If we put the list of these people. In the show notes, I don't think you, anybody would uh, in in the United States would recognize one of these names. I mean, that's probably unfair to say, though, right? Because they're, well, they're probably writing in different languages. It's just that for me, it's just about you know this is being voted on by a small group of international journalists, and it's sort of treated almost on the same level as the Oscars, which is voted on by you know thousands and thousands of actual craftsmen and like the peers of the people who are winning these awards. So. I, you know, as long as everybody who's listening knows that and sort of understands what they're getting into with the Golden Globes and doesn't take it too seriously, I think it's fine for like the uh, providing a platform for people to deliver heartfelt speeches. You know, like Reg uh, Regina King gave, I think, maybe the night's best speech um, when she was talking about gender parity and all that. So, I mean, like I said, it's a great oh, uh, place. And I know you're saying, um, you're allowing our readers to read between the lines of why it's a big difference. Can you explain why it is a big difference of these ninety people? Like, what could be what could be potentially disastrous about only allowing you know an award show that is voted on by ninety people? Well, uh, okay. So one of the big dings always against the Golden Globes is that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is sort of notorious for um, loving to take selfies with famous people and hang out with famous people. So that that sort of uh, tinges a lot of their nominations. They'll nominate certain movies, especially in certain categories, to basically get as many famous people in the room with them as possible. So that's whole, one whole thing. The thing that I'm I'm sort of getting at is that, you know, a lot of times in these uh, acceptance speeches, these actors and, and directors and stuff will go up and like thank everyone in the crowd. And at the Oscars, that actually makes sense because the people that they're thanking are the people who are in that room for the most part and and people who have actually voted and and awarded them that prize, right? But at the Golden Globes, you're thanking, again, a, a group of 90 total people and you're just, I don't know, it, it just, uh, I guess what bothers me is that it's, it is sort of... Um, culturally it's it's treated with uh a level of it, it's treated as being on the same plane as the oscars and i just want everybody to know that it's absolutely not but again you know there's the whole other side of it of glamour and pageantry and like the whole fun of seeing people like andy sandberg and sandra oh you know make jokes and hang out and uh, famous people dressed up and all of that stuff and that i don't want to take anything away from that but just in terms of like the credibility of the award ceremony, I just want to make sure everybody's on the same page there. Oh, for sure. Um, can we talk about Green Book winning best comedy slash musical? <sighs> what the hell? <laughs> yeah. What is going on there? Um, uh, it, it's also funny how neither the producer or Rami Malek mentioned the film's director in their thank you speeches. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, there, there's like a whole thing where uh, that that seems to be Green Book seems to be moving right along through all of this award season stuff without being dragged down by uh, association with its association <laughs> with Brian Singer. Um, and uh, yeah, that's a, a very problematic thing for <laughs> for a lot of people. So we'll see what happens. We'll see if the Oscars 
um, the voting body is uh, is going to overlook some of that stuff like everybody else seems to be doing or if they're going to draw the line somewhere. HT, I know you didn't watch the Golden Globes, but you were following along on Twitter as you mm-hmm. were watching, rewatching Spider-Verse, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. later. Um, wh- what did you think? Um... I think that I'm honestly not surprised by these choices because, yes, the Hollywood Foreign, Hollywood Foreign Press tends to go with uh, movies that are celebrity-driven and that have a popular following. And I will say Bohemian Rhapsody has a hugely popular following. I remember during Christmas, all my relatives kept asking me, have you seen Bohemian Rhapsody? It's a great movie. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, um but also, and, I think and I know we shouldn't go by box office, but Bohemian Rhapsody has done insane business internationally, mm-hmm. which, you know, these film critics are from from, you know, international water. So uh, what else did you have to say? Yeah, I know it's, it's huge internationally, but it's also kind of funny to me that, you know, we talked about how the Golden Globes tends to award star power um, and yet A Star is Born, which had uh, arguably more star power than Green Book, for example, didn't really get any awards either, which I thought was very strange because that felt felt like a film that was uh, sort of um, tailor-made for this kind of awards voting body. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just find it funny that, like, I feel like film critics should be the biggest supporter of the Golden Globes because it's it, it's a an award show that is voted on by film critics. And if you look at Twitter on a night when the Golden Globes are happening or, you know, when nominations hit or anything, the most cri- uh, critical of the Golden Globes are film critics. <laughs> like, we can't even embrace embrace a an award show by film critics for, you know. It, yeah, but they're, they're hacks. Like, yeah, we're not yeah. supposed to, like... like do remember when they nominated The Tourist? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Th- these are the film critics that give film critics a bad name. Like these are the people who are literally being bought for their opinion. You know, this is the type of thing that like crazy DCEU fans accuse us of doing when it's really these are the critics who are doing that sort of thing. They're just they're glad handing until they, you know, they, you buy their vote. And so to hell with them. <laughs> hey, Peter, uh, it looks like I'm right. Sorry. No, no, no. I, I am in. A, I'm in a hundred percent agreement with you. I wish the Golden Globes would fall into the abyss at this point. Honestly, um, I only really enjoy watching the Golden Globes for the drunken shenanigans that happen on this show because it's the one show that allow like basically an open bar, uh, whereas the Oscars you have, they have to stay in their seats and they can't eat. But the Golden Globes is all about that intermingling, and I always find that part fun. The awards itself are kind of secondary to me. If you go back to the very first Oscars uh, in the 20s, the awards, the award winners were announced in advance. Then over the course of 20 minutes, everybody stood up and got their trophies, and then everybody danced for two hours, and that was it. I say we go back to that. Eliminate all of our award shows, announce the Oscars in advance, let them dance, and nothing else. No other award shows. You know, I know you did not intend this, intend, intend for this, Jacob, but this is a good segue to jump into the water cooler. Because what I've been doing uh, this week is uh, last week I went to the Roosevelt Hotel, which is the place where the first Oscars were held, uh, to attend the magic show at the Roosevelt starring Justin Woolman. Uh, Kitra got me tickets to this um, 
for Christmas. Uh, the, Justin Willman, you might know as I mean, he used to be the the host of Cupcake Wars, uh, but he is a accomplished magician. He ha- has a hit Netflix series called Magic with hum- uh, Magic for Humans, uh, which had a few clips that went viral, and uh, there's a season two coming. Uh, he has a residency at the Roosevelt. Uh, it's produced by Theory Eleven, who also produces a, a show called The Magician in New York City, which is also fantastic. Uh, this is a premium, uh, you know, date night experience. Um, it's a, it's a fantastic show. Uh, Justin is just so funny, so charming. Um, I feel like on his TV show, he comes off a little more Weasley, and you can kind of uh, be annoyed by him. Uh, In this show, he's just so fantastic. Um, It's such a small space, so it's kind of like this intimate venue. You walk through a fake bookshelf to get in there, so it's kind of like the Magic Castle in that sense. And um, it's uh, I'm trying to think of probably the best trick he did. I don't want to spoil this whole show for you, but the best trick he did, I think, was uh, something he started off the show with. He took someone's phone from the audience, their iPhone, and had people examine a glass bottle, and he somehow put their phone in the glass bottle. And um, he kept the glass bottle on stage for the entire uh, uh, show in intermission. On the intermission, he actually, there was like a uh, chalkboard, and he wrote the, the guy's phone number on the chalkboard, and all through intermission, um, you know, the people in attendance could send text messages to to the, the, the poor guy who, you know, lost his phone in the bottle. Um, but uh, I would highly recommend the show. It's uh, it is kind of expensive. It's kind of pricey. But and especially after, you know, you, you, you know, have drinks and all that stuff. And uh, but it's it's a such an elegant venue. It's, it's such a fun, magical night, and I highly recommend it. Um, on this podcast, uh, I mean, everybody here knows I am a uh, member of the Magic Castle. I go to the Magic Castle every week. I don't talk about that every week on the water cooler because I know not everybody listening to this wants to hear about magic. But I'm sorry, guys. This time I have two magical things to talk about, the second of which is I saw this close-up magic show from a guy named Mike Ilizdadel is Il, how do you pronounce this last name? I don't even know how to pronounce this last name. Jacob, can you help me with this? Ilizalde? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I feel really bad. I I could not find find a pronunciation online. Uh, okay, so this guy is not a magician. He is the guy that started Spectral Motion, which is the visual effects company that has. Uh, provided the visual effects for you know Guillermo del Toro's stuff like Hellboy and Pacific Rim. They do paci- uh, practical monster effects. Like they created uh, the Demigorgon in Stranger Things. So this guy has been uh, you know a big guy in Hollywood, and for the last twelve years he's been a magician member at the Magic Castle. But he's never performed publicly as a magician. It's kind of like just his hobby, his side thing. Uh, so. Uh, this week at the Magic Castle, this past week at the Magic Castle, he had a his first full week of shows, like performing for a public audience, and it was in the close-up gallery at the Magic Castle, and it, it's really hard to describe what this was, but it, if you can imagine, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. It's it was like if Guillermo del Toro directed a close-up magic show with incredible Hollywood practical effects. 
uh, but the power of stories, magic, monsters, and horror films. That was it. I wish, Jacob and Chris, I wish you could have seen the show because it was uh, it was fantastic. It was Lovecraft-inspired. It uh, it um, There was literally practical moving monsters on a table in front of me in the close-up room. It, it was probably the, the biggest show I've seen in this small, small venue. And I, I'm sure he'll perform... He'll come back to perform in the future at the Magic Castle. If you ever have the chance to see Mike perform, it was uh, so inspiring and so so magical. I, I ended up seeing it three times. I saw it. Uh, I had to keep on bringing friends to, to see it because I, I just uh, loved it so much. But uh, that's what I've been up to. Jacob, what have you been doing? Uh, I've been doing two things that kind of go hand in hand. First of all, uh, after years of putting it off, I finally joined Instagram, and I'm doing it for a reason. And the reason is that uh, after literally dying, wait, wait, my wait a second. Life, a- everybody's yeah. leaving Facebook right now, Jacob. You're you're on the yeah. other the the reverse trend here. I'm I'm leaving. What do you mean? Like I'm leaving? I'm not leaving Facebook quite yet, but I'm definitely joining Instagram. Yeah, yeah, but Instagram's um, owned by Facebook. <laughs> uh, yeah, what whatever. <laughs> anyway, the reason I'm doing it is uh, I want a public place where I can be. Uh, properly motivated and properly shamed for the, the a new diet I'm going on. I'm not going to explain the details of the diet. I'm not going to be the kind of person who opens myself up to being told what I should and shouldn't do. I, I know it works for me. I just to stick to it. But I realize that if, if I have a public place like this podcast where I can say, hey, I this week I kept on doing it. This week I didn't. Uh, here's a photograph of a week later, a week after that, etc. If that stops happening, then everyone who listens to this, everybody who follows me on social media will suddenly know, oh, Jacob screwed up. And I'm hoping that kind of shame will finally be what I need to finally get a lifestyle change going because my entire life has been ups and downs of die for six months very successfully and screw it all up. Die for six months very successfully, screw it all up, gain all the weight back, lose it all back, gain all back, lose it all back. It's just been an up and down roller coaster of like physical nightmares and – so I'm going to use social media shame to try to keep me in line. So if you follow me on Instagram, where I'm, uh, where I'm Jacob Samuel Hall, all one word, you don't see like a weekly update uh, starting, you know, very soon. And you start saying, "Hey Jacob, well, are you still fat? Are you still fat, Jacob? Please, like, I, I will welcome this." And then, um, and if I fail, I fail. But I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail publicly instead of privately. So that's my goal: is to succeed in public, so I won't fail privately. Have you? Um, I, I have a similar problem, Jacob. As as you know, we've talked about this. Um, have you? Uh, I forget the name of the website. There's like a website where you can actually bet on yourself losing weight. Have you heard about that? Uh, no, I have not. Where I think you like put money up and you 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 try to like put a goal for like that year, and if you don't reach the goal by the end of that year, you lose the money to a charity. But if this you is do, very interesting. yeah, I, I forget the name of the the website. I'll I'll look it up and find and put it in the show notes uh, if I can find it. Um, but I mean, that would be privately, right? Like you want publicly, you want to be shamed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, everybody can look at uh, Jacob's Instagram. What is your Jacob? Uh, what is your Instagram name? Uh, Jacob Samuel Hall. Since Jacob S. Hall is already taken. Ah. Uh, um. Okay, let's move on to Chris. I saw that uh, on Instagram. Speaking of Instagram, I saw that you built yourself a a a shelf to house your Blu-ray collection that looks like bigger than than your wall. 
Yes. Um, yeah. So I have a very large collection of Blu-rays and DVDs. Uh, I don't really even know the exact count. I'm probably going to try and do a count as I'm going through this project. But uh, I was running out of space for them. They were just piling up everywhere. And uh, I don't know if folks out there know this, but shelving is ridiculously expensive. Like just to get one shelf to hold not even all the movies, maybe like half of them would run me like close to a hundred bucks. And I, I was not, you know, about to drop, you know, several hundred dollars on shelving. So, you know, I, I Googled cheap shelving and a video came up with some guy building this sort of shit. It looks kind of like a giant uh, pallet, a giant wooden pallet. And it looked very easy. And I am not uh, handy at all. I'm very bad at, at doing anything <laughs> involving tools and labor. I, I just stink at it. I never learned and I I suck at it. So, But it looked really easy. So, so much so that even I could do it. Or so I thought. And uh, it turned out to be very difficult. It took like four hours to, to put it all together. But I, I finally did. And... Uh, yeah, I, I'm. I, I haven't put the, the the movies on the shelf yet. I'm I'm going to alphabetize them and slowly do that. And I'm really hoping uh, there's enough room because if there's not, I'm I'm probably going to need to um have an intervention because uh, this thing is it's seven feet tall, it's six feet wide, and if that can't hold all my movies, uh, I have a problem. You know the real problem with. Uh... Blu-ray and DVD shelves are that like a lot of the stuff you buy, like if you go to Ikea to find a shelf, like, you know, it's not built for Blu-rays. So like the shelves, like there's some, you know, some room in between. So if you want to maximize how many Blu-rays you fit on a wall, you know, you want to have the shelves like exactly right because that means you could fit more Blu-rays. So, so I'm assuming you, the shelf is like, the exact amount between Blu-rays or something? Uh, yeah, it, I mean, I measured it for DVDs because I have those two and DVDs are taller. But yeah. yeah, so everything should fit perfectly in theory. We'll see. Okay, we'll I'm, get... I was curious because, about the shelf because do you have any, like, oversized Blu-ray uh, titles that, like, fit awkwardly on those that kind of shelf? You mean like big box sets or something like that? Or... Yeah, like the like the I don't know, like, like, the, like the... the Dark Knight that comes in a bat pod. Uh, no, I don't have anything that's like shaped like anything. I do have the 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 Dark Knight trilogy in like this rectangular. It's like almost the size of a shoebox, but I don't even like bother putting that on the shelf. I just have that somewhere else. I was thinking more of like the the uh, the Harry Potter Blu-ray collectors. Um, editions that are like each in like a they're like in a box that is like not quite as tall as the book but about as wide as the books no i i intentionally avoid getting stuff like that because it drives me nuts like i want it to look like aesthetically pleasing i hate when i have something on the shelf that sticks out like a sore thumb like that so i tend to avoid buying those things gotcha yeah that was because I, I was looking at that and i thought that it might be a good solution for me too because I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as you are where i have a ton of physical movies and the shelving is it's, it's it's a little too expensive for my taste but it's I, I don't know if that'll work for my purposes or not yeah i should add that uh i put this whole thing together for 40 bucks this is 40 bucks of wood uh, compared to hundreds of dollars uh on a shelf so that alone uh is what inspired me to do it how are the two by fours uh attached to the wall 
Uh, I just have L brackets, so they're just L brackets mounted to the wall, and then the, there's slats across the two by fours with just ordinary screws. Gotcha. Okay. It looks- Chris, I for one, I, I'm really disappointed that you don't own the Amazing Spider-Man Two uh, that comes in the bucket of Jamie Foxx's face. Yes. yes. If someone like sent that to me for free, I would make an exception for the the Jamie Foxx shocker head, whatever Electro, whatever his name is. But no, I don't have that. <laughs> You, you know when I when I was uh, younger and first collecting DVDs, I used to love those gimmicky, uh, you know, DVD like you know you'd buy like Terminator Two and it would come in like, you know, the the head of the endoskeleton and stuff like that. And now as an adult, I hate. Well, first of all, all this stuff is just like cheap plastic and doesn't fit anywhere. But like you know, I have a huge board game collection like Jacob does, and I won't buy board games that come in like you know, tins or like one of my favorite games of all time is pandemic. And they just came out with a 10th anniversary edition of pandemic that comes in like this briefcase that looks like it's like a, uh, I guess a first aid kit. And because it like, doesn't say the name of the game on the side and it's awkward shaped, I'm not going to buy it because, uh, do you have this problem at all, Jacob? Uh, I do. I, certain companies insist on putting the games out in tin and that, uh, pandemic, box speaking of was tempting for for a hot second until i realized the storing would be a nightmare but yeah it's like as people who follow my twitter know uh, my house is a labyrinth of shelves all full of things and whether where there aren't shelves there are stacks uh so i just learned how to store things and i learned how to stack things but even i had to um had to say no to the pandemic uh 10 year anniversary edition because there was just no way that thing could be remotely displayed in a way that would satisfy me and speaking of shelves, I've heard that Ben has been spending his time reorganizing his bookshelves. Yeah, to keep the uh, the home storage conversation alive for a little while longer. Yeah, my wife and I, um, we took down all of our Christmas decorations over the past few days. And uh, we've been buying a ton of books over the past, I don't know, couple years, I think, and just acquired so many that we no longer have any room on any of our shelves. So we went through and, uh, you know, found a couple things to move around. We, we actually went to Ikea and bought a bookshelf. So I'm, I'm, uh, I feel like, <laughs> like Garth and Wayne, like bowing down, like we're not worthy to Chris who actually built his own, but I just took the easy way out and went to Ikea and, and built my own in like whatever, 30 minutes or however long what, it takes. What, to... which, what kind of Ikea shelf did you get? Do you know the name um, of it? I, I think it's called Billy actually. Billy, yeah. yeah, the, the Billy bookcase, they're the best ones. They, yeah. um, my house has at least 15 or 20 of those, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we we just got one. And, um, yeah, and my wife and I took it upon ourselves to, uh, you know, use that as an excuse to basically just take every take stock of every book that we own and, you know, organize it uh, like library style. Like, here are the classics. Here are, you know, art of movie related books. Here are, uh, you know, biographies and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it was, I mean, it's a lot of work, but it's fun. And I don't have nearly the, the massive collection that like somebody like Jacob has. So, uh, it didn't take, <laughs> it didn't take nearly as long as I would imagine if Jacob did something like that. I feel like you would be It'd out be of commission weeks. for like, yeah, weeks on end, but, um, it just took us a couple of days. So yeah, that that's taken up a lot of my time. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been fun, you know, just sort of hanging out with my wife and reorganizing stuff. And now everything looks really nice. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe if, if we end up with a, a full shelf's worth of 
books uh, of new books maybe i'll go the chris route and and build my own next time I, I'm I a... my... oh go ahead Sorry. i was gonna say my, my next step uh ben is i'm gonna look into buying some software or, or building a, a, a spreadsheet of some kind where i can categorize everything because we should point out where it's like okay it's not what shelf is my book on it's in which room so i want to get a um especially like oh this book is located on this shelf in the guest bedroom or on this shelf in the, in the dining room or it's in this bathroom uh so i, I need to form i need to fill and form a database to help me get around my own home library at this point yeah i feel like you need a, a gps system like you look down at a device and it beeps with a you know like put an arrow in a certain direction and tells you to go upstairs and turn right and there it is it's funny that you mentioned that because that was what I was going to ask. I was going to ask if you had an app that like tracked all of your books. Uh, I know when I had at one point I owned almost three thousand DVDs, and now I don't own almost any Blu-rays. Uh, I own a drawer of Blu-rays. Um, Chris, you, you own so many movies. Do you have an app that like tracks like how many or what you have? Because there was times I would go to Best Buy and buy something and come home and realize I already owned that movie. You know, uh, when I first started collecting things, this was back in the VHS days. I did keep like a, a list, primarily because I like I used to be the guy everyone borrowed things for because I owned everything, and you know people would borrow stuff from me and I would forget they have it. So I did it to keep track of that. But as I've gotten older and lazier, uh, I, I sort of fell out of the habit. But I, I was actually thinking of starting again with you know this project I'm undertaking, but. I'm also still lazy, so I, I might not do that. Okay, let's move on to HT. What have you been up to? Do you, have you been organizing your bookshelf? I did no such home improvement, but I did have uh, some people stay at my home in New York. Uh, my little sister came to visit me for New Year's Eve, and she stayed for the weekend. And uh, while that sounds like it's a, a fun party and the wild time. It was not, in fact, because if you remember, New Year's Eve was quite miserable, at least on the East Coast. There was just a downpour of rain and it was not a great time to be out. So uh, my roommate and I just had people over at our place where the extent of what we did was just like have a power hour to a an, to an early 2000s playlist and watch the original pilot for the original Glow. So... The actual 80s oh, glow. Yeah, not not the show that's on Netflix, but the actual pilot for the show that the show on Netflix is about. Yes, exactly. It was fascinating. <laughs> uh, is, is it as bad as it looks? You know, it was quite um, like gripping in some parts. And it, yeah, it was bad. The wrestling improved in like the second episode I hear, but, um, they had actually a good story. Like they had one about, um, a, a, a Russian, oh, I can't remember her name, uh, a Russian wrestler who was, uh, fighting this one woman who was like acting like a baby the entire time. And she was really into it. She had like the baby voice and everything and like the curls. And also her brother was paraplegic and he showed up at the match and she was inspired to beat the Russian lady. It was quite, it was quite a, um, an experience to watch. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I actually recommend if you like glow, I recommend you checking out the original pilot for glow because, um, it's, uh, it's, fascinating oh there's a rap too they do a rap at one point at oh, the yeah. closing credits have you watched the documentary about glow that i guess the series is actually kind of spawned off of i've not watched the documentary no i think it might be on netflix if 
Mm. Yeah, I would assume. Synergy, right? Probably. Yes, synergy. Um, what else and, were you doing? Um, yeah, um, I uh, set up my PS4 that I got for Christmas, and um, I did not play the Spider-Man game that it came along with, but I did pop in uh, before Sunset to just, like, test it out, and uh, that was, like, my first, um, not my first watch of 2019, but definitely my first indulgence of 2019, just re-watching this movie that I rewatched way too many times. <laughs> okay, uh, let's uh, move on. Before we get to what we've been watching, let's talk about what we've been reading. Um, I will start off with uh, a book, a, a couple of books that I got for Christmas. I'll start with uh, David Chen got me the Tashin, uh, the big uh, epic uh, Star Wars archives book. This book is when you open the book, it's I don't know, probably like four feet long. It's like one of those huge coffee table books. It's over 300 pages. Uh, it, you know, I have all the the Rinsler making of Star Wars books, and those to me are some of the best books on it in on the making of movies. And uh, you know, I have tons of Star Wars books actually, and it's not like this book um, provides you with that much more new like you know photos of that you haven't seen from behind the scenes. It's probably kind of like a more of a best of that kind of stuff. Um, like, you know, I have the huge Ralph McQuarrie concept art book, which is fantastic, but this provides the concept art in a size that is like on, you know, next to having it on like a poster on your wall. These, these are huge and you just get to admire and look at them. And the author spent, I think three days talking to George Lucas for this book. So this book chronicles the original trilogy of star Wars up through, uh, the Ewok movies and the holiday special and all that kind of stuff. So you actually get uh, George Lucas talking about the holiday special, one of uh, the only times you'll actually get to read him talking about that. Um, but the book is just like a best of everything. So if you don't have any of those books, this book is amazing. I think it might be very expensive. I think it's like 150 bucks or 200 bucks. Uh, but if you have a Star Wars fan or are a Star Wars fan, I would say this is a must-own that like I, I'm having hard time even getting through it. I'm just on a new hope right now because every page is filled with uh, fantastic photographs, illustrations, uh, you know, text. You know, I'm I'm reading right now. Uh, I just read, and he interviews like everybody. So there, it's kind of like a uh, a uh, what do you, what do you call that? Like a written history or a uh, oral history. oral history? Yeah, oral history of what what happened. So like, there's even like a quote from like. George Lucas's lawyer and talking about how they, you know, went and talked to Fox. Like they had like 20 meetings, 20 something meetings with Fox, like going over the rights and like how they ended up, you know, getting the, uh, the merchandising rights for the star Wars out of the deal. So it's just, um, in, they also have like clips in there, like from the set. Like, so you, you get to visit the set during, the production basically be an eye on the wall, like during like, say, you know, Empire Strikes Back when they're coming to the line, you know, the infamous line of I love you, I know. And uh, the director is talking to Harrison Ford about, you know, I think he tells him, like, you should tell him, Leia, I'll be back. I promise. And like Harrison Ford just comes up with the I love you, I know thing. And it, it, it's cool to like read it and feel like you are a, you know, 
it's just just on the wall of the making of that history. It's it's such a great book, uh, Chris. I think you would actually love it. Like it's uh, fantastic. I and I was hesitant to buy it. I was I talked about it in our Slack channel because I wasn't sure it was going to provide anything more than those like making of books. And uh, and I uh, David Chen saw that and bought it for me for Christmas. So I I, I need to thank him uh, because this is a such a great present. And the other book I've been reading is uh, the Art of Spider Man into the Spider Verse. And you know this is one of those typical art of books i own a lot of them from for pixar movies i own some of them for like marvel movies and uh if you haven't ever like you know thumbed through one of these books they're just filled with awesome concept art and interviews with the creative teams involved and uh this one i think i don't think they were expecting that many people to want to buy this book because it's sold out everywhere and uh, somehow kitra got her hands on this uh and it's just I mean, if you love the art from that movie, which I don't know how you couldn't, this book is just so enjoyable. And uh, I, I haven't had much time to get all the way through it, but I've just been enjoying the images and, uh, you know, paging through them. Uh, Jacob, what have you been reading? Well, since I last spoke about it, I finished reading Blake Harris's Console Wars, which is said to be uh, adapted into a uh, TV miniseries uh, by Jordan Vogt Roberts. And once again, this is, this is written by um, someone who contributes to Slash Film on occasion, Blake Harris, who I've edited. I don't know him in real life, but just disclosure. But if I, if I didn't like the book, I just, I just wouldn't say anything. I liked it a lot. So I'm going to spend a moment to say that. This book, which is about the corporate rivalry between Sega and Nintendo in the 90s, is absolutely fascinating. And in so many ways, the birth of modern consumer culture, the things we expect from a shopping experience from from a corporation, from a, a product or a brand loyalty, it all sort of gets born here, either intentionally or unintentionally. So even if you're not a video game fan, it feels like a, it's a vital like look into this changing moment where uh, what, we, what people wanted out of, out of companies change and what we wanted out of being fans of companies change. And I know some people I've, I've heard have issues with how um, – how Harris structures the book, dialogue in the book, which is that he recreates and condenses lots of uh, scenes so that they play out as like dialogue-driven scenes, like a novel, as opposed to like you know a, a step back for a nonfiction historical approach. And I personally really enjoyed this. It lends the entire book this incredible immediacy. It reads more like a screenplay than it does a um, a book at times. Like I, you can really picture the movie in your head as you're reading it, and. I had a really great time with the book. It's a very long book. It, it, it was 500, 600 pages long, and I had such a blast reading it. And I, I wish it was longer, honestly. And there's, it ends very shortly after the Sega Saturn uh, disaster, and there's there's a few more story, years left of what I wish I could have followed it. I had to Wikipedia all the main subjects to learn what happened next because I wanted to learn more. So it's, it's a very good book, and I recommend reading it before the series comes out. And I, I yeah, love uh, the style that you're talking about. He, he writes it almost as if it is a movie. So yeah. it's going to be fantastic to see that, uh, I guess, TV adaptation of it. And his next book, it, I think it's coming out sometime this year, it's called The History of the Future. And it's about uh, Oculus, Facebook, and uh, you know VR. And it kind of follows Palmer Lucky. Uh, I don't think there's much out about it now. You can pre-order it on Amazon, but uh, f- from what I can tell, it seems like it might almost uh, might be kind of like you know uh, the spiritual, you know, not connected but spiritual sequel to like the Social Network, that kind of book. Yeah, uh, I. 
I don't want to say too much, but uh, let's just say someone sent me the first chapter of the, <laughs> of, of, of the new book. Me, me, me too. It. I didn't want to say that, Jacob. Uh, <laughs> it, it is. If you liked Console Wars, it is excep- exceptionally good. It is very much the same style. But whereas Console Wars follows main characters who are so good and pure, they might as well all be played by James Stewart because they're all trying their best and they're all noble underdogs. This new book is dealing with some people who are really not as easy to like. So I'm very, very curious to see how the, how this very approachable, you know, you're in the room style goes when you're around people who you don't want to be around as opposed to people you're rooting on all the time. So I'm very curious to, to, to see how that plays out. Yes. Uh, what else have you been reading? I just finished uh, The Devil and Sherlock Holmes by David Grant. David Grant is a journalist. He's written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic. Uh, he wrote The Lost City of Z, which became a, a uh, movie a few years ago. His, uh, he wrote an article first that became a nonfiction, nonfiction longer version. And he recently also wrote, um, uh, I think it's a killer of the killer of the flower moon. Is that what it's called? Um, uh, it's, anyway, it's, it's a movie that uh, Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio bought the rights to uh, to make, hopefully in the near future. So he's make, having a lot. His work's being adapted to a lot of movies, and this book, uh, Devil and Sherlock Holmes, is a uh, collection of essays and articles he wrote between the years 2000 and 2009, and a lot of them are crime stories. A lot of them are like stories of, of obsessive people. Some of them are mysteries, and Interestingly, a lot of them been adapted into movies. Like one story is being filmed into a movie right now, um, starring Laura Dern about an arson case in Texas that goes wrong. Um, the story True Crime, which is an incredible um, like whodunit a serial killer story, was made into a terrible movie starring Jim Carrey uh, called Dark Crimes. Um, the story City of Water about the tunnels underneath New York City that supply the water supply is being made into a movie for Paramount right now. The Old Man, the Gun uh, was adapted into a Rob Redford movie last year. Um, is a story in here that is the basis for the documentary The Imposter. So there's just all these really, really incredible um, stories. He's they have the he's an incredible writer. Like he just writes in a, in a style that's just absolutely gripping from the moment you start reading. It's incredibly detailed without getting bogged down. Incredibly cinematic without being, you know, feeling like it's like it's it's begging to be written to a movie. It is just nonstop like fascinating stories like i would have to put the book down frequently and turn to whoever i was with and start explaining them what i was reading because i had to i had to share what i was learning about all these subjects all these crazy stories and um i'm looking forward to reading these other books i mean i've read the lost city of z but his um his new book which i'm looking at the proper title right now is yeah killers of the flower moon the osage murders and the birth of the fbi it was published in 2017 being made into a movie by Scorsese and DiCaprio at some point if they get around to it. So yeah, they're it, making it, everything like so. That's yeah. th- that might not even happen. Maybe, but but yeah, David things. David Grant, his stuff is being adapted constantly, and I was I was shocked to realize that like so many of his, of his articles, not just his full books, but his articles have been optioned and made in the movies. So this book is incredibly entertaining and you know educational as it is. But also, if you're the kind of person who like wants to be on top of true stories that may become movies very soon, maybe pick this one up. Very cool. And HD, while you haven't been rearranging your bookshelves, you have been doing some reading, right? I have. I guess I'm getting on my New Year's resolutions early. Um, I've been reading Hunger by Roxane Gay. It's a book I bought um, around midway last year, never really got around to it. And it's a memoir by Roxane Gay about how um, she turned to um, food and weight gain um, in the wake of this harrowing um, sexual assault that she experienced as a young girl. And it's a really well-written, really dark, and really affecting 
uh, memoir that is um, gets into her self um, sort of disgust and her um, relationships with her friends and family and uh, her own narrative as um, she kind of wrangles with um you know, her weight and her, like her trauma. So it's, it's really good. I'm, I'm only halfway through it now. It's a bit hard to read uh, and I have been reading it right before bed too. So it's not like a light reading kind of thing, but it's a really great um, memoir. And um, I highly recommend it if you guys uh, want to check it out. And that is Hunger by Roxanne Gay. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, I finally saw If Beale Street Could Talk. I know this is uh, on many of your top 10 lists i was excited to to finally see this um i i don't think this is going to make my top 10 films of the year but i did really like it a lot um you know he he's so fantastic at capturing these authentic like honest intimate moments there's so much beautiful cinematography uh from james laxton in this and i i feel like if this was another year that roma didn't come out that this would be you know the clear winner for for cinematography in my mind uh there's you know moving performance by regina king uh the score is incredible uh it's a touching story with a terribly sad gut punch of social commentary. Uh, but I, I guess for me, it feels more like a mood piece. It's slow and poetic. Uh, the, the pace of the film kind of prevents me from entirely loving it. Uh, but I did really enjoy it. I know a bunch of you did also see it this week. Uh, Jacob, you saw it, right? Uh, yeah, it, it made my top ten of the year. It was number eight on, on the list that's published at slashfilm.com. And, and if you listened to our podcast, part one of our 50 Greatest Moments podcast uh, earlier this week, uh, you heard me talk a little bit about Barry Jenkins and why I think he's special as a filmmaker and how he manages to find so much empathy uh, in all of his characters and how he manages to uh, create male characters who are masculine without being toxic, which is extremely hard to do and extremely hard to make that feel real and Especially and, nowadays. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, the idea of um, how should I act as a man? Uh, I feel like Barry Chickens has an answer for me. I feel like I want to. Well, I want to watch it. Feels we could talk to learn the do's and the don'ts of how I can be a better person and a better man to the uh, other men and the women in my life. Uh, I feel like Barry Jenkins is a very is a very wise storyteller. He's a very he's wise beyond his years. He's not. He's, you know, I, I look forward to like the next thirty years of of, of his movies because I feel like he's only going to have more lessons for me to absorb and learn and more more ways from them to emotionally wreck me. I think, this is, I think this is an amazing movie. Yeah. Uh, Brad, you also saw this film. I did. Uh, this actually ended up topping my top ten list. Uh, it's my number one movie of the year. Um, I absolutely fell in love with this movie. I was just so caught up in the, the intimacy and the passion of it all. It, it's simultaneously full of hope but also such a harrow, harrowing movie. There's so much love in every frame. Uh, Nicholas Bertel's score just like seeps through every scene, and you just it makes you feel even more of that passion that Barry Jenkins has put in here. Um, the performances from uh, Stephen James and Kiki Lane are absolutely astounding. Even the supporting performances, you know, Regina King, who just won a Golden Globe for it. Um, everybody in this movie is is fantastic. I. I just loved every bit of it. And I, and I was kind of surprised that, Peter, you said that you felt this was more of a, a mood piece 
than Roma. And I actually feel like the opposite because I love Roma too. It was it was actually my number two. Oh, I, I wasn't comparing it to Roma. I was just saying. But but I I, I but I think that. I feel like Roma is more of that kind of movie that you described than if Beale Street could talk is. Um, but I, st- I still love Roma. But it, there's just something about Beale Street that just felt so much more. I don't know. I, I just connected to it. And I just I felt so much more while I was watching it than uh, I did Alfonso's movie. And not that I wasn't totally moved by Alfonso's movie. But Beale Street just uh, just just overwhelmed me with with emotion. It was it's so good. Well, that said, I, I haven't published my top 10 of the year. But I will say, if Roma is on my top ten, it's not in the top half. The top ten, so uh, I'll I'll give you that little tease of that. Um, what what else did I watch this week? Uh, I watched. Uh, well, actually, I watched two weeks ago, but we haven't talked in, in such a long time, guys. Uh, I watched a Showtime limited series called Escape at Demora, and I mentioned this in our Slack channel, and I think almost everybody on this podcast was like, "What is that?" never heard of that before uh last night at the golden globes uh patricia arquette uh won uh for for her performance in that in in that uh series and uh it's well deserving because i think honestly her performance is probably in that uh mini series is probably the best performance i've seen in all of visual media this past year uh this is a show i didn't even hear about I, like some this is one of those ones that came about because i saw it ranking highly on uh, most people's best uh tv of the year uh lists and i was like what is this it's on showtime it's directed by ben stiller um so every episode is directed by Ben stiller i think there's like seven episodes uh, this is one of those uh, miniseries that's like a seven-hour-long movie, and it's, uh, it really feels like a movie more so than, I think, most limited series. This this is uh, – I know there's probably other shows that do this, but this is the first that I, I noticed that it, it was shot and presented in 2.35 widescreen. So, like, the widescreen that you see in, you know, big movies and uh, while most TV is shot for, like uh, – what uh, 16 by 9 or 185 so it really had a more cinematic feel to it it really like has these wide shots that uh kind of bring back the feel and framing of like 70s movies uh ben stiller is a great director uh and uh this show uh for those who don't know it is based on a true story a few years ago of uh two inmates who attempt to escape from a prison in upstate new york and uh, they are played by Benicio del Toro and um, oh my god, I'm uh, Paul Dano. Paul Dano, yes, uh, Paul Dano, who both have great performances. Uh, th- this 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 story kind of has shades of Fargo. Uh, it um, Patricia Arquette is someone who works at the prison who kind of gets uh, sucked into this plot in in a way. And uh, this was created by Brett Johnson, a staff writer from Mad Men, and Michael Tolkien, who wrote The Player and Deep Impact. Uh, it's just incredible cast, great performances, uh, great moody long shots. Uh, it's um, 
it's uh, I don't know. I, I would highly recommend it. This this was um one of my one of my favorite things I've seen this year. Uh, I know it's not a movie, but it really feels like a movie. And I would highly recommend adding this to your your watch queue. Escape from Demora. Um, it's it's really one of the best things that came out this year. And also, uh, since I've kind of uh, done a lot of my catch up on movies for the end of the year, I've started moving on to TV, like with Escape from escape at tomorrow actually it's called escape at tomorrow um i've also watched the first couple episodes for the tv show counterpart and this is a show on stars so no one again probably no one's heard of the show because no one watches stars but it's really really good it's uh jk simmons uh who exists in this world where we have found a poor like a hole to another uh, alternate version of our world, and J.K. Simmons is playing two different character, two different versions of the same character. One from our side, and one from the other side. The other side is a little different than our side, and we kind of ha- it's kind of like a spy story. We kind of use information, we trade information with the other side to kind of because some things are the same, and it's um, it's probably the closest thing I've found to kind of a lost like show since lost. Not that it is lost and it's not, it's definitely not like those, you know, those bad lost copycats that came out after lost. Um, I love the concept. It's compelling. I'm going to keep on watching, but I've only seen the first three episodes and uh, has anybody else here seen counterpart? Sounds like that's a no. No, I've been wanting to watch it so much. Peter's is so up my alley. Uh, but then my star subscription suddenly canceled itself and my attempts to re- resubscribe have been like, give me errors. So sorry, stars can't watch the show. Can't give my money there. Uh, if if you go through Amazon, you could subscribe for a, a one week free trial. So that might be a way for you to to do it and watch it on Amazon Prime through whatever device you watch it. That's what I'm doing. Um, but J.K. Simmons is just so great in this, and I, I, I recommend this, but I would definitely recommend Escape at Demora. Uh, that is probably going... I think, Chris, I think you'd love that show, and Jacob, I also think you'd love the show. So um, I highly recommend it to you guys. Uh, Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I've been slacking on my, my movies of 2019. It's, it's seven days in, and I've only seen one movie, and that was Escape Room, which I'm not going to talk about. But uh, instead, my wife and I have been watching Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, which is on Netflix. And it is uh, adorable. It's a wonderful, feel-good show about this charming woman who comes to people's houses and tells them how to <laughs> clean up because their houses are just littered with garbage. And uh, I can really relate to that because our house is constantly a dump. Actually, uh, just like Ben, over the weekend, my wife and I did a, a massive uh, house cleaning. We took down the tree and we tore things apart. And part of that was actually inspired by this show, just uh, you know, just the idea of like, Jesus Christ, we really need to clean up because we're living like slobs. And I'm sure in like three weeks, the house will be a dump again. But for now, it's pretty clean. <laughs> so was this whole book, uh, the DVD shelf inspired by this? No, I was actually I had the plan to do it before the show. But I guess the reason I finally got around and finally did it was part of the, you know, the, the big cleanup. Yeah. Hey, hey, Chris, there was a controversy on Twitter over the weekend is apparently there at some point she recommends people get rid of their books and people got really mad about this on Twitter. It was, was, was that overblown? Yeah. I mean, she, it's not like she's like 
you know, burn these books. It, it's more that she's saying, you know, if whatever books you feel like you're never going to read again, you know, why not just donate them to someone else? You know, she's not saying like, take your books and throw them in the garbage. She's saying, you know, give them away to someone else who might read them. And I can, I can understand that. I, you know, I, I personally don't think I would ever want to get rid of my books. I understand, you know, that, that knee jerk reaction, but I do think as is usually the case, people uh, online were being a little, uh, a little too uh, overreactionary. I mean, but that makes sense. That advice makes sense. If you're never, if you don't think you're ever going to pick up that book again, why have it on your wall just for like decoration? I don't know. It's a weird thing. Books are like, cause I don't have this problem with movies, even though I have a lot of movies, I don't have a problem giving away or, you know, selling movie. But for some reason there's like something about a book where it's like, I don't know. It feels more personal, I guess, because you, know, you hold it in your hand and, you know, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know how to explain it. There's no, there's no logic behind it, but I, uh, I, I understand where people are coming. Yeah. The books I've read are is is a history of me in a lot of ways. So I, that's why I took it very personally when I was incorrectly informed about the extent of her book advice. So, well, her advice for all all things like um, clutter wise is just to keep things that spark joy in you. So if they are something that have sentimental value of you to you, then like you will keep it. And a lot of my books, and definitely I know a lot of people who like who love books uh, will want to keep basically all of them. It's not, she's not telling you to throw them away no matter what. It's just uh, whatever matters personally to you. And you also saw the show, right? Yeah. I was watching it um, because Netflix very wisely released this on new year's day, which seemed like a very smart um, marketing move on their part because everyone's going to be looking for their new year's resolutions as well as being hungover. So I was watching this and it's very like, yeah, like just a calming, sweet show that follows Marie Kondo, who actually has had a following before the show started. She uh, published a book, I think, called Spark Joy, and she has like this huge following uh, across the world. People who follow her sort of like mantra of minimalism call themselves converts with a K. Sure. So now this is just her way of reaching out to more people. And um, the show also comes with like nice little tips for like how to fold your clothes for the most maximum um, storage space or um, what to do with your like miscellaneous items and stuff or um, that kind of thing. So it's it's both a good advice show as well as a nice show to like see other people's more worse accommodations. It's not hoarders by any means. Like these people don't live in like, you know, um, slovenly habits or anything like it's just uh basically mostly ordinary people and teaching them how to get rid of the stuff they don't need but it hasn't inspired you to tidy up um kind of (laughs) i was watching it while drinking and i was like i'm gonna clean up my my dresser (laughs) my drawer and then i just like threw all my clothes on the floor and was like this is horrible idea (laughs) it's too much work yeah like I, I don't feel I'm definitely not a hoarder. My, my place is I would consider it kind of clean, but I do have a lot of like, you know, I have a lot of t-shirts that I've I've hold, been holding on to. I'm like I'm gonna lose weight. And I'm gonna fit back into this t-shirt. So I have like racks of t-shirts I don't use, and I have a lot of books that I'll probably never pick up. I feel like I need to watch the show. It's and, good for just like yeah, ordinary people who have just a little too much stuff and like you know need to get rid of some of that clutter. Very cool. Uh, And that is on Netflix. Yes. Cool. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Oh, I watched the Titan Games, the new athletic competition show uh, hosted by Dwayne Johnson. And Peter, um, the question is, 
is it better or worse uh, by than way, Netflix's w- w- show? W- yeah, when I was uh, watching the Golden Globes, they had uh, commercials for the show, and I was going to text you. I was like thinking about texting <laughs> you. I was like, Jacob, you need to see the show. This looks totally <laughs> down your alley. Oh, it is. I, I, I remember we covered the trailer on the site a little while back, and I, I think I wrote it up. I was like, yes, this is very much my thing. Because um, the, the easy comparison is Ultimate Beastmaster, which is Netflix's uh, athletic competition show. Um, but whereas Ultimate Beastmaster is very international focused, has a very large cast, and has like a lot of people being eliminated per episode as they, as they winnow it down, uh, the Titan Games is very, very focused on only a handful of people. And they actually split it into uh, two competitions, men and women, because uh, it's one of the problems with, with Beastmaster is that uh, the women can never do as well as the men, and every, every consistently, every single season so far, and like it's been unfair to like these watch these incredibly gifted female athletes just not be able to do the things that men could do. So, but by, by, by splitting it into two competitions, you can cheer on both. You don't have to watch a really powerful woman uh, just lose to a man constantly. It was, just, it was like that, that makes Beastmaster upsetting sometimes. Whereas Titan Games is all both entirely to be about um, uplifting as be as much as possible. That's that's Dwayne Johnson's whole you know uh, persona these days is how can I uplift people? How can I how can I encourage people and inspire people? And he's barely even a host. His whole job of the show is stay at the sidelines with the camera watching him. Watching everybody else compete, while he says things like "They've got heart. Look at them. They're gonna win. I like them. They have." I, I, and it's, it's just the show is entirely about very strong people, much stronger than all of us on this show put together, doing these Herculean, insane tasks. Uh, uh, look like they would break my body in two seconds. And at the same time, it's incredibly positive. Lots of high fiving and hugs. Everybody's always smiling. Very positive in that way, and I really enjoyed watching it. And the first episode is a two-parter. It's, I, I watched it on Hulu, where it's streaming right now. It, it's very, very good. If, if you enjoy this, if you enjoy this kind of thing, if you enjoy, you know, triumphant stories of very strong people doing incredibly outrageous things in their bodies to prove that there's they, they can please the Rock, then go for it. The Titan Games is very fun. I'll be watching it for the rest of the season for sure. I'm just gonna run down a few things real quick. Uh, I'll talk about Beale Street. Uh, I saw Aquaman since I last was on this show, and Aquaman is very good. It is sometimes, sometimes almost amazing. It's never, it never quite reaches a, a, the pinnacles I would like it to. But I consider me as sh- pleasantly surprised as anybody that Aquaman is as fun as it is. And like watching it, like watch feeling the audience around me, like getting into it in, in a way that you never, I never felt while watching any other DC movie outside of Wonder Woman. It just has that crowd pleasing thing going on at Batman Superman like Batman Superman actively avoided being crowd pleaser actively avoided to be being fun actively avoided giving the audience what they want whereas an Aquaman movie is delivering what an audience wants in ways that uh I don't think anybody saw coming um the fact that it's now the highest grossing DC movie out of all the new ones like doesn't surprise me at all because that movie is a blast and I saw Spider-Man in the Spider-Verse again uh it is Still the best superior movie ever made. And sorry, Aquaman, you, I, you may be making more money, but Spider-Verse like, runs laps around Aquaman in terms of pure filmmaking. It is just an incredible achievement. I can't wait to see it again before it leaves theaters. Uh, HD, you saw it again, right? I did see it again, and it's better even on rewatch. Um, you just catch so many nuances and details. I don't know if I would go so far to say it's the best superhero movie ever made. Um, I still have a soft spot in my heart for Spider-Man 2. But it is just, it's so good. And um, I enjoyed watching it over and over again um, and seeing it for the with my friends who saw it for the first time. So it's just, it's great. 
Very cool. Still my favorite film of 2018. Uh, H.E., what, what else did you watch this week? So apart from watching Tidying Up on Netflix, I also caught this uh, German series on Netflix called Perfume. And it's really fascinating sort of Hannibal-esque uh, serial killer thriller about a, um, a serial killer who basically cuts out like the the scent glands of their victims. And um, it's partially inspired by a novel of the same name by Patrick Siskind. And um, it was also um, kind of, which also spawned the film to perfume the story of a murderer. But this kind of is like a sequel to it in which it follows this group of um, elite friends who were uh, obsessed with the serial killer in the original novel and basically formed a club to experiment with human sense. And then um, the, the series cuts between flashbacks to their high school uh, years with this club and to the modern day when the serial killer is, um, you know, rampaging and have, and killing all of these people uh, in very grotesque and very grim ways. Um, so it's, it's great. And uh, I definitely recommend it for people who like and miss uh, Brian Fuller's Hannibal. It has that same sort of um, macabre, almost like slightly campy vibe to it. And I, want, I don't want to say campy, but it has that same vibe to it. Very stylish. So um, it's really good. And uh, I think it's only eight episodes on Netflix. Six episodes. Six episodes. Yeah, it's very short. So uh, if you have time and you want to watch a, a series with subtitles, um, check it out. Uh, what else have I been watching? I have watched um, Vice. I won't talk too long about this because I think I'm the only one on staff who did not really like this film. I just found it very smug and self-aggrandizing. And I thought that the tonal shifts were more jarring rather than intentional. And not it didn't quite work as well for me as The Big Short did um, with Adam McKay. So um, did not like Vice. I won't say it's the worst movie of the year, like many critics are saying, but I definitely um, did not um, connect with this movie quite as well. Christian Bale, though, was good. So I'm not angry about his um, winning the Golden Globe for that performance. Um, I also saw Shirkers. Um, when I saw Netflix. this film, I, I thought you would enjoy this film. So I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about this one. Shirkers? Yeah. Or Vice? Oh, Shirkers. Shirkers. Oh, I like this film a lot. Um, it's not my favorite documentary of it, but I liked how it was sort of like this puzzle box that kept unraveling. At first, you think it's going to be this ode to filmmaking and about the Singaporean uh, film scene. And then it delves into like this darker mystery of who this former uh, film teacher is and the it when it whenever it delved into him that was when the film became most fascinating to me he was kind of like this strange character that reminds me almost in a ways of like Tommy Wiseau and how he himself is like a larger than life character and doesn't feel like a real person um, the man at the center of shirkers who um, Sandy Tan is investigating uh, kind of feels like that, like a larger than life person. So it really, it was intriguing and I liked it a lot. So, um, and I really want to see the original film that she made because it looked like a weird avant-garde surreal film that probably would have, you know, made some sort of history if it were released um, or completed. Uh, so it was, it was really sad, but I like to see that filming, filmmaking process, but I was more intrigued by like the, the mystery, I guess, at the center of it. And Ben also saw this film too. 
I did, and I felt largely the same, even down to the Tommy Wiseau comparisons for that guy. Like, I, I, I mean, I left this movie hating that guy because of what he stole from these girls who were just really, you know, innocently thinking that they could make this movie. And, you know, this was 1992 that they set out to do this. This was two years before Clerks. And, like, this was a time where I feel like if they were able to complete that movie it actually would have made a, a significant impact on maybe even like the international stage, you know, like there, there is, it, it's hard. It's sort of hard to wrap your mind around now because there's so much stuff out there and there's so much content and that it's way easier now for people to just uh, make movies than it was in the early nineties. But like they had access to everything that they needed at the time. And like she was saying, I feel like it would have been this weird sort of avant-garde thing, but who knows what it could have, you know, the ripple effects that could have, come from this and um so it's sort of like heartbreaking to watch and realize like what this guy you know he, he not only stole like a year of these girls lives or however long it took them to film it but like you know the the mental effects and then also like you know what did he take what did he potentially take away from the film culture at large you know like there's a there's a lot going on there and it is a little frustrating that we don't get all the answers you know i don't want to spoil mm-hmm. this movie but I, I don't think as, – as much as the mystery of this guy in this, at the center of this film is uh, compelling, like I don't think at the end of the day that's what this movie is about. It's more of – I mean what you guys kind of alluded to in, mm-hmm. in the, the themes. I, I really enjoy it. I, I, I feel like this is one of those films that many people haven't seen this year that uh, is you know in that top uh, 10% of the year. So I would, I would highly recommend people check this out. And another film I feel like a lot of people haven't seen this year that uh, a lot of people are saying is one of the better films this year is another film you saw called Shoplifters. Yes. So Shoplifters, I've raved about before. I won't talk about too much, but this is the film that I saw right before I finalized my top 10 list and it shot right to the top. It's so affecting. It's so emotional. It's so intimate. And it's just so deeply human that I could not walk away from it without just like being shaken to my core and being utterly devastated by this film um, while still maintaining a, a a degree of hope because it is still a very optimistic movie in a sense. So I highly recommend that you guys all see it. I know I'm the only one who watched it, but I'm just going to be keep tooting this horn. I can't watch a trailer for this movie without just like bursting into tears. So um, please Where, where see can people Shop see Hunters. this movie? Because like that's my problem is I can't find it anywhere. It's honestly, actually, I think it's almost out of theaters in New York, too, um, because it was in like a few select theaters um, that I managed to see it at. um, But I think it's probably on its way out, which is unfortunate because I think it's I think it's the best movie of the year. And I'm sure like many people think it's one of the best if if they end up being able to see it. Yeah. Uh, One of the best films uh, of a few years ago is something else Mm -hmm. you saw called It Follows. Yeah, I was um, watching this because my roommate wanted to show it to me and we were having just a, a rather chill night. And uh, we watched It Follows, which I had never seen before. But now I was like, I'm I'm a horror fan now, I guess. So I, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll check it out now. Um, and I liked it. I think in the sense it was more style than substance. And I felt like a lot of the hype going into it kind of um, s- not uh, kind of um, – tempered my expectations in a way because I was expecting something that was really revolutionary and and um, 
different, and I think because we've had so much good horror recently, especially the high concept horror recently, that I was expecting something a bit more with this. And while I liked the atmosphere and the dread that permeated throughout this film, I did feel like it was quite stylish in a way that um, kind of forgave some of its lack of substance. I, I do think there's more substance than, I don't know. I feel like uh, I would go on a uh, adventure through some writing about this movie because I feel like, and, and I'm not saying the obvious analogy of this movie, that I think there are other things in this movie that uh, might not be immediately clear that I think mm-hmm. add to the depth of this film. Uh, but I don't want to talk about that here. So, uh, so you also rewatched one of the Harry Potter films? Yes. So, um, the Film Society Lincoln Lincoln Theater is currently doing an Alfonso Cuaron retrospective in honor of Roma. And one of the first films they did was uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, uh, which they showed in 35 millimeter, which I'd never seen before. So, I, um, went to see it there and uh it was a lot of fun and i I actually haven't revisited this film um in its entirety in a while and it's so fun to see just especially the scenes of all the um the adult actors thinking just how dramatic they can make every scene um they're just chewing the scenery to the utmost extent and especially the what i think is the best scene of the entire series is when they put you know Alan Rickman and Gary Oldman and David Thewlis in a room together and are just they're just doing like their own version of Shakespeare while Daniel Radcliffe and um everyone else just watches and i think that's just such a great fun scene um and Quran too um it was it was interesting seeing this like post Roma and uh, watching how he loves to play with foreground and background and his deep focus here. He really enjoys his crowded frames. And um, it's fun to see that even in like a a supposedly like children's movie. Um, He's just like, even back then he was flexing his, um, his directorial muscles. I felt like, Um, and uh, also it's interesting too, that like even when we see like the magic of, of Harry Potter, the world of Harry Potter in the first two movies, this one felt like, the it had the most color to the magic it felt like something that was both lived in and also was very just enchanting in a way that it hadn't before so um prisoner of azkaban is still a great movie and uh just uh it was great to watch it again and confirm that yeah it's the best of that series in my opinion and i think uh kiran just brings i mean everything you said i'm not i'm not Mm -hmm. gonna make this podcast longer but I, I i just love that movie and i i want to revisit it soon actually um i don't want to revisit that whole franchise but i'm afraid to rewatch those first two movies <laughs> because they're not the first one great. is good the second one is a real slog yeah okay let's move on to ben aside from shirkers what have you been watching I caught up with Forbidden Planet, which is a movie that I have been uh, sort of dancing around for a long time. It it came out in 1956. It's a big budget sci-fi movie from the 50s. It's sort of like considered a classic by a lot of people. It's basically a a riff on Shakespeare's The Tempest, but in sci-fi form. And I think... I, I don't know. I came across this movie first just by seeing like incredible artwork and posters and stuff for it um, just randomly online. And it's so it's been in the back of my mind for a long time, but it finally came on TCM and I, I DVR'd it and finally got a chance to check it out. Uh, it stars Leslie Nielsen in, I think, his debut movie role or, or certainly one of his early roles. And he is like playing like a, a 
straight uh, like sci-fi action hero kind of guy. So as somebody who's only seen Leslie Nielsen in his later comedic works, this was an interesting time capsule for me to go back and, and see him uh, deliver a pretty solid performance as just like a straight ahead, no nonsense uh, ship captain. Um, the movie is about the uh, a group of people, a group of astronauts who land on a mysterious planet, and they're basically going after uh, a previous expedition that had had been sent out to that same area. And it's all about what they learn there, what they discover, and it's a pretty basic plot. But um, you know, the the production design is really insane for the time. Like I said, this movie came out in 1956. Um, there's this really really cool. A monster in the film that was created by a Disney animator who was hired by MGM, I think, um, to, yeah, MGM was the production company that made this movie and, and MGM sort of like bought out this Disney animator from his contractor, hired them briefly just to design this one monster in this movie. So that's like a big standout thing for me. And, um, just in general, the, the whole thing really felt like a, a really cool uh, movie for the time and like a, a precursor to a lot of the stuff that we'd see on Star Trek like 10 years later. So um, if you've not seen this and you're, a, and you're a, a sci-fi fan, I would recommend checking out Forbidden Planet because it, it seems to be, um, like I said, yeah, sort of a precursor to a lot of stuff that we that that is uh, iconic in that genre in terms of imagery and, and style and things like that. This um, is my go-to uh, put on in the background on mute at parties movie, Ben. I have to, I put this on because people are always drawn to it. They, 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 they Without sound, just the imagery, the colors, the, and the animated monster, all the retro aesthetics, especially in high def, like people like will be at a party and they'll slowly start turning toward the TV every single time. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's astounding. I can totally see how that would work, and and especially like the um like the ray guns, the laser guns that they have are <laughs> like it's just so kind of funny to watch what you know the one of the early uh, examples of that technology and how people like don't react at all when they're firing their their fake guns. There's no blowback. There's no nothing, and like even the blasts that come forth from them feel like really weak and and kind of puny compared to like stuff like star wars and things that we're used to seeing but um yeah there's a lot of uh it's a it's it's a good movie and it's like an archaeological interest i think for 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 britain planet so check that out um i also rewatched the big sleep for probably the 10th time which is one of my favorite movies it's from uh the mid 40s and stars uh, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. It's like one of the most famous film noir films ever made. And my wife had never seen it. And um, I, I just wanted to show it to her because I've loved it for a long time. And uh, this to me is like maybe the peak of the film noir genre. It's like the the murder mystery story that is at the center of this thing is really, really difficult, almost impossible to figure out. It's, uh, I mean, I, I think one of the, when I was scrolling through Wikipedia earlier, it said something about it, the plot being famously convoluted uh, to the point where even the guy who wrote the book on which this movie was based, um, Raymond Chandler, didn't know the answer to a question that the filmmakers had when they were <laughs> reaching out to him and trying to to put all these pieces together and draw their, you know, put their yarn on the wall from point A to point B. Um, so, but like none of that really matters. It's more about the mood and the atmosphere and the rat-a-tat dialogue and the incredible performances from Bogart and Bacall and the chemistry that they have on screen. It's really like, um, I mean, it just lights the whole thing up. So uh, I would definitely check this one out if you've not seen The Big Sleep. Uh, and then finally, I think the only other thing 
Um, oh, I watched, uh, I'm rewatching Arrested Development and Community at the same time right now. I, I showed my parents the first episode of Arrested Development when I was visiting them in Florida and sort of hopefully got them hooked on that. We watched the first like five episodes when I was back there with them. And then my wife and I just continued on instead of, you know, it's hard when you watch that many episodes of a comedy that's that good. It's hard to just, you know, cut ties immediately. And we've seen it already a couple times through. But, uh, man, those first three seasons of Arrested Development are just like (laughs) the definition of comedy classic to me. And the same with Community. Like the early seasons of that show are just so great. Um, The only other movie that I watched is something that I know Brad has seen as well. And it's Bird Box, the new Netflix movie. I watched that this morning. And uh, I mean, it's fine, I think. Um, I felt like it was sort of, it was it's competently made, but it reminded me of like the happening mixed with the village. So there's like a lot of M. Night Shyamalan going on in there for some reason, even though the movie itself doesn't necessarily have that feel, but it more of like the uh, the mysterious creatures that are haunting Sandra Bullock and her her family and the idea of the characters being blind and sort of wandering through an unfamiliar environment. It just sort of had those Shyamalan vibes for me. And really it just made me want to rewatch the village again because that movie rules and <laughs> Bird Box does not rule. It's it's just fine. But and I'm interested to hear what you thought about it, Brad. Yeah, I um I'm kind of on the same level. I enjoyed it while watching it. And I think that there's some really uh haunting visceral moments in it but it also feels kind of like diet a quiet place just with a different uh you know uh version of the the sense that mm-hmm. they you know with just with sight instead of sound um yeah so it's and for, i don't know for me without spoiling anything the ending just felt a little too abrupt and kind of i don't i don't, I don't know uh light for my taste like it's just like there was one part when you realize like what where they're at and everything where I kind of just rolled my eyes. I'm just like, oh, of course. Um, so like it's it's pretty good. The performances are are solid. Uh, there's a good ensemble cast here, but it just it feels like Netflix really trying to make their version of a quiet place. And so I I didn't love it as much as a quiet place, but I I still had a good time watching it. Brad, you also watched Vice this week. I did, and uh, almost on the complete opposite end of HT, I I really love this movie. Um, I've I've always liked Adam McKay as not just a filmmaker but a comedian. Um, he he used to write for Saturday Night Live, and so like I have this immense amount of respect for him, especially jumping from doing the kind of comedy he used to do to Vice. Uh, and I just I I love this movie. I love that his satirical approach to the the monster that is Dick Cheney. Um, I I understand on some level the idea of McKay's approach to this movie, especially when it comes to his credit scene and the criticism that he's lobbying towards uh, the American public as far as um, not paying attention and, you know, paying more attention to distractions, being hypocritical since he has made movies like Anchorman and Talladega Nights, which are the same kind of distractions he seems to be criticizing for taking us away from, you know, paying attention to important issues in politics. But I also feel like him making those movies doesn't preclude him from criticizing the fact that people don't do both. Like it's, it's possible to appreciate the kind of pop culture art that Adam McKay has done and other, you know, entertainment and also still pay close attention to what's going on in politics and doing that. I think that there are far too many people who don't do that. And so I think, I I think to say that what he's doing is hypocritical isn't entirely fair because I'm he's, he's a very smart guy and he's, I'm sure he's self-aware of what he's doing because he's made some very silly you know, comedies, especially when it comes to things that they did, you know, on Funny or Die and, and stuff like that. So I, I I don't think that the kind of movies he's made before preclude him from making that kind of 
criticism of society and their approach to politics and the things that we let the Bush administration and Dick Cheney get away with. Um, but it's it, Vice is just it's uh, it's just this, this great you know criticism of Dick Cheney and just how desperate he was to prove himself and to use the power of the government to do what he felt was right. And it shows like the kind of terrible things that can happen when we don't pay attention to what's going on, you know, behind the scenes of our government and don't uh, and, and let fear or things like that, you know, get get the better of us. I, I just thought it was a fantastic movie that came at a, a, a perfect time. I love just how deeply unbalanced the movie is and how it's just from one point, like strong point of view. And I, I, I wish there was more movies like that from both sides, actually. I, I really yeah, enjoyed that. Absolutely. Um, what else have you been watching this week? Uh, so I, I kicked off uh, New Year's um, with the the I believe what was the first thing to hit Netflix for for 2019, which was Taylor Swift's Reputation Stadium Tour documentary. Um, I will not. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit that I like Taylor Swift. She she is good at crafting uh, catchy pop tunes, and I, I enjoy her music. And I was interested to see what the concert was like because every now and then I've considered, you know what, maybe it would be cool to see a Taylor Swift concert because it looks like she puts on a hell of a show. But being stuck in a huge stadium with a whole bunch of screaming fans and stuff around doesn't sound like the best thing uh, for me, especially when I've, I've heard that those tickets were through the roof when it comes to the price. So this was a cool way to uh, experience her concert. I was a little disappointed because... It's not the kind of concert documentary that really goes behind the scenes or shows more of like how she operates and that kind of thing. It, it is purely just the concert that you're watching. Um, and I would have preferred a little bit more diving into just, you know, her production and development and creating the concert mixed with the footage of her actually performing and that kind of thing. But it was it was still uh, really cool to see just the scale of the show. And uh, it really just puts you in perspective just how crazy it is that somebody like that, you know, is just in the middle of a stadium with thousands of people watching them and they're specifically there for her. It's, it's really kind of awe inspiring. Um, and I also took the, uh, time to see Holmes and Watson. I, why? I I had to see this movie for myself. I love stepbrothers. I love Talladega nights. Uh, I love Will Ferrell and John C. Riley together. And like, the buzz about this movie was so bad, and I hear, kept hearing stories of people walking out that I was like, I, I have to see how bad this is. And this movie is just, it's not good. It is so unfunny. And I, I don't even know how this movie like got past focus group screenings or, or anything like that, because I laughed maybe a total of six times. And they weren't even hearty laughs. They were just like, that's kind of funny. Uh, it is it is just a huge swing and a miss. Like I, I don't know, like what they were thinking with with this movie. Like they they should have just scrapped it entirely, just because it, it's a complete waste of everybody who's in it. Uh, I don't know how Aton Cohen, who was responsible for writing Tropic Thunder, one of the best comedies of of that decade, uh, made this movie because it is wretched. It is it's one of the worst comedies I've ever seen. Uh, it's just just a complete disaster um i i have just no interest in seeing this movie just no yeah, interest don't don't i did this for you peter <laughs> uh what else have you seen this week brad 
Uh, I, I did a lot of catch-up so that I could properly complete my top 10, uh, which is out on Slash Film if you want to go check it out. Um, I got around to seeing The Favorite, uh, which obviously everybody has been praising left and right, and uh, it is fantastic. It does something different uh, with the, the period setting that you normally don't see. It's this dark, twisted comedy that has fantastic performances from Olivia Coleman, Emma Stone, and Rachel Weisz. Uh, it's, it's delightfully catty in the same way that A Simple Favor was, but also in a much different way because it's much more vicious um and and darker and it's just uh i i really just liked it it's it's so funny too there's so many great laugh out loud moments in this movie that you don't expect um particularly i love how intermittently everyone is just rude to this young servant boy for no reason at all they just like um you've probably seen the scene now where olivia coleman as Queen Anne just walks by him and stops and looks at him. And she, she's, like, she's like, did you just look at me? It's like, what are you doing? Look at me. Look at me. And she just screams at him. And everyone else just treats him like crap for no reason. He does nothing the entire movie. And they just constantly yell at him. And I, I love that recurring gag throughout the movie. <laughs> and uh, you've, you also have some other stuff you've seen? Uh, yeah, I, and I finally uh, got around to seeing Roma, which, uh, as I talked about before, I loved. It's, it was the number two on my top ten list. Um, it's, it's just such an amazing uh, piece of filmmaking. Alfonso Cuaron wrote, produced, directed, edited, and shot this movie. And the the way he moves the camera through this film is so elegant and simple. Uh, it's just these, it's it's as simple as just moving moving a camera from left to right across the you know these these sets that feel like you know they they weren't built that you, you can't even imagine a crew being on these sets. It just feels like it's Alfonso Cuaron sitting in the middle of a house with a camera and just moving it around. Um, there, there are incredible shots in here and there are sequences that are um, amazing that he pulled off too, from the middle of the movie where uh, without, you know, spoiling anything when um, our, our the, the main character goes and shops for a crib for her baby. And then all of a sudden there's a, uh, a protest outside uh, from student protesters protesting the government. And just the way he goes from these quiet, uh, scenes to something you know on a much larger scale happening outside nearby and bridging the the you know these things together, it's just perfect film uh, filmmaking. He's he is a, a master behind the camera. He he knows how to tell a story. He in, injects you know himself into it. a lot of this. He you know he pulled from uh, his experience with with Mexico City and you know and growing up there and and it, it's just so powerful and so personal and I I, I loved it so much. I really love the cinematography of that movie. You did mention uh, this film when I brought up my criticisms of Beale Street earlier. And I do think the criticisms, especially in the first half of Roma, is very valid. Like, it is very much like a mood piece. In the second half, I feel like the narrative kind of kicks in. I will say this. If if you haven't listened to the Slash Filmcast review of Roma, I would highly recommend it uh, for both sides because I think – Britt Hayes, who uh, often writes for the site, she had a wonderful uh, negative reaction to the film that made me kind of reassess my feelings on the movie. Uh, not that it made me like you know dislike the movie in any way, but I love I love when someone can come up with a a, a insightful point of view that challenges the way you think about films and that that's what i think great uh you know criticism can do uh so i'll check that out that's on the slash film cast um let's move on to what we've been eating 
I'll start things off. I've been talking a lot about uh, being on the keto diet, which means eating you know less than 20 carbs per day and uh, things I've been finding uh, because I, I think people find I, I've actually I not just think I get emails and tweets and stuff people telling me they're finding some of these uh recommendations helpful for their lives even if they're not in keto uh if you're you know just want to eat less sugar um there's a company called cereal school which i i ordered some of their cereal they have a cinnamon bun cereal and a like a almost like fruit loops like cereal uh their fruit loops is sold out they i guess they kickstarted this and they produced enough and sold out within like months of their production of like the cereal because it's just like everybody loves it it comes in these like little bags and uh i i it's um five grams of carbohydrates per bag and it's only like 70 calories eight grams of protein uh so if you love cereal and don't like sugar uh i would highly recommend cereal school um the quest chips uh there's a uh, chili lime flavor that's new and i'm a person that used to be like you know whenever there's a party i love those lime hint of lime flavored like tostitas chips and i you know obviously on a low carb diet i can't have chips this fills the urge so much uh these these little bags are like 140 calories, three net carbs, 20 grams of protein. So uh, way better for you. So um, I don't know. I, I think it's something you could check out. And I recommend it to someone who might not even be on the keto diet. I think like uh, those two things are uh, I mean, maybe you're going to be paying a little bit more money because anything that is, you know, diet food you're paying more money but it seems like the ingredients and uh, the nutritional information on these things are just way better than the alternatives that you buy you know at the grocery uh store uh so i recommend them but uh let's go from one side of the coin to the complete other and go to brad's food corner and find out what brad has been eating this week so peter was talking about this healthy new cereal, and I just uh, went to the complete opposite of the spectrum and probably got some of the unhealthiest cereals you can find out there. Um, it is... It's, it's going to sound weird to say this, but it is a great time to be like a, <laughs> a cereal lover. There are so many new cereals that have come out over the past month and a half, and I've stocked up on a lot of them so I can try them and talk about them on, on the show here. And so uh, that will be coming in future episodes of the Water Cooler Daily as I make my way through them. Um, but there, I will talk about two that I was able to get my hands on and try already. Um, one of them is kind of a throwback because uh, people might remember back in sometime in the 90s, there was a Pop-Tart cereal that was out. And it was around for a little bit and then it disappeared. And it's one of those things where like you see pop up online every now and then and be like, hey, you guys remember when, when this was around? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, I missed that. Well, it's back. Uh, there are two new Pop-Tart cereals. There's one for the, the frosted strawberry Pop-Tarts and one for the uh, brown sugar cinnamon Pop-Tarts. I haven't tried the brown sugar cinnamon one yet, but I did go out of my way to try the strawberry frosted Pop-Tarts one. Uh, and it's really good. Um, it's, uh, I, don't, I, didn't, I don't quite remember what the old one tasted like because it's been so long, but this, this one is, is really good. Uh, it's even got um, the, the filling inside, the, the strawberry you know, jam filling is, is particularly good and, you know, with, the, with the milk and the frosting on it. And so... Uh, if you can find that, it's it's pretty much everywhere. I, I picked up mine at, at Walmart uh, like a, a week or so ago. Um, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, in the very bad cereal category, uh, there's a Sour Patch Kids cereal out there. 
for I'm so disappointed to hear this because I'm such a big fan of Sour Patch Kids and I I sent this to you uh, when I found it online and I was like Brad you got to try this yes and so I, I I was able to pick it up at Walmart and it is just it is such a weird uh, flavor like there there's a little bit of like the of the sour you know dust whatever on the cereal and I tried it dry first to see what that was like and it's it was fine. But it's not nearly as, as okay in the milk. It's just this weird amalgamation of slightly sour taste from the candy with a, a cereal that tastes vaguely like tricks, but like generic worse tricks. Um, and the milk does not do it any favors whatsoever. It's just it was not pleasing to my mouth. I was I was really just disappointed in it where I, I had a few spoonfuls and I was just like, ugh, this was a mistake. <laughs> so I, I I uh, left the box at my friend Charlie's house so that his kids could have it. <laughs> ah, so disappointing. Okay. And then there's um, on the, also on the Pop-Tarts thing, uh, Pop-Tarts also released these new uh, bite-sized things called Pop-Tarts Bits that are basically like little, they're the size of like shredded mini-wheats, but they're a little bit softer um, and they still have strawberry filling inside them. And those are, there's also a brown sugar cinnamon style one of those too. And those are, those are really good as well. These seem like things that you're not supposed to snack on, that people are going to, like, eat the whole, like, bag or whatever they come in and, like, eat, like, you know, 5,000 calories. No, I mean, they come in, like, little... Little baggies. Uh, yeah, little tiny baggies, like like, like uh, a lot of snacks do. Ah, yeah. No, I like that. Uh, also, the cereal skull thing that I mentioned. I'll link both of the things I mentioned in the show notes. Uh, that comes in those little baggies, which I... I love when stuff does that because if you leave me alone with a box of cereal i'll just pour i, I think like the recommended servings like three-fourths of a cup of, of cereal and i'll you know I'll, I'll probably have like two cups of cereal in there and then put some milk um so i'm eating like most americans i'm probably eating way more than the recommended uh you know meal uh, but let's move on to what we've been playing uh this past week, I was celebrating my friend John's birthday, and I went to two escape rooms, and, which were a lot of fun. Uh, one of them sucked. It was kind of like Galaxy Quest. It was a, a theme, which should have been good, but it wasn't. Uh, the one I want to mention is Lab Rat at Hatch Escape Rooms. It's their only escape room. It was probably the best escape room I've done and i've probably done five or six at this point so not like a whole lot but if you're in los angeles i'd recommend you check out lab rat at hatch escape rooms and after that first birthday we went to two-bit circus which is in downtown los angeles this is a new um entertainment complex that has popped up it's from the son of nolan bushnell who was the creator of atari and Chuck E. cheese and what this is is kind of like a an arcade for adults. So it's not a barcade, so it doesn't have like a ton of retro games. It does have a bar, it does have food, which was questionably okay. They have tots and stuff like that. Um but what what is cool about this place is they kind of have like this midway with all these games that I think are custom made for this, uh, which I can't even describe to you, but like they're very uh, they're games that like get you physically involved, yet they're you know a digital video game. And uh, in addition to that, they have escape rooms, they have a, a VR maze, they have a whole line of virtual reality um, experiences. They uh, probably the best one that I saw uh, Kitra did was this one where you actually get on this custom made um, 
device that lets you that has wings and basically the wings controller it moves you around and there's like a fan in your face and it makes it gives you the sensation that you are flying in the age of dinosaurs and uh it looked like a lot of fun but i did not do it kitra loved it um but I would recommend checking this out if you're in Los Angeles and uh, looking for something to do. Two Bit Circus uh, is great. The, the only criticism I would give is it is taking the old arcade model that you have to pay, you know, put money on a card, kind of like um, Dave and Buster's, and each game has its own value to play it. I feel like this would work much better if it was like. You know, I pay for a card by the hour. So I pay for this card for three hours and I get to play as much things as I want. I feel like there was not many people in there. It was a weekday. And I feel like they would get so many more people in there, sell so much more food, make so much more money if they could, you know, put it down to the actual, you know, a time allotment, um, which uh, I, I do hear they do on some nights. But anyways, um in addition to that, I've, I played um, a new game called Keyforge. This is from Fantasy Flight, and the uh, designer of Magic the Gathering, Jacob, um, the name is escaping me. Do you know? Oh, goodness. I, it, ask me any other day, any other week, I'll be able to tell you. Richard I'll Garfield? Find, yes, Richard Garfield. Richard Garfield. Um, uh, I've never gotten into Magic. Magic the Gathering is this deck game where you play you know you build your own deck of cards you buy packs you eventually take the best cards from those packs to build into your strategy to play against other people with these decks it's very costly time consuming it uh requires a lot of knowing what cards are in the sets and meta and it's uh not something that's that much fun for me uh this new game from fantasy flight games is interesting because it, it, it is a card game much in the sense of Magic the Gathering where you play, it's a two-player game, you play against other people, but this is a game that could have only been made right now. Like, it, could have, it couldn't have been made years ago. And what, what I mean by that is that when you, you buy a deck, you don't buy a pack, you buy a deck to play uh, this game, and it's like, I bought them at Barnes & Noble, so they were $10 a deck, and when you buy a deck, your deck is a unique deck. So say a million people buy decks, every single one of those million people will have a different deck of cards. And you can't combine the cards because the card back actually has, you know, the name of your deck and the look of your deck. So it's everybody has a unique deck that's unique to them. And uh, I played it with my friend Jeff, and we had four decks, and it varied. Uh, the, the balance of the game varied, but it was fun to the kind of discover open up a pack uh, or open up a deck and actually discover what your deck is and kind of try to figure out what the you know uh the advantage or what kind of strategy you're supposed to take with that deck and it's all generated by an algorithm and like these printers that you know obviously couldn't have existed years ago uh and uh it's a lot of fun i i do think there is some balance issues but if you're willing to go along for that ride and try to you know find a deck that you like uh it's a lot of fun and i highly recommend it it's called keyforge and you can find it on uh, at Barnes and Nobles, Amazon. Uh, I think the base set is sold out and selling for insane prices on Amazon. But you can still get the the decks uh, separately on, at those places, and you, you can just kind of like use pennies or something to count the like uh, gem. You know, you use a uh, a thing to count for what the tokens that you were supposed to have. It, it's very easy to do. Uh, Jacob, have you played this yet? 
I know I decided to sit Keyforge out. Uh, interestingly, I, I was also never a big Magic player because it's a very expensive hobby. But I was a big fan of other uh, deck building card based games, and the whole fun for me was building the deck, like going through and and like finding your weaknesses, finding your strengths, and trying to hone the best deck possible for your next game. So that being done for me kind of strips away the appeal. So I get why you would enjoy it and why other people will enjoy it, but not for me. To, to me, it's all about the discovery. Like, I don't even look at the cards. We just shuffle, and we just start playing, and it's just like, what do I have? Like, what do I have to, you know, uh, what do I have to deal with? Um, let's move on to Chris. Chris, what have you been playing? Uh, yeah, I don't usually partake in this segment, but uh, for Christmas, my wife bought me this board game called Bob Ross, The Art of the Chill Game, and on uh, every year on New Year's Eve, we, we were we were very low key. We just get together with uh, another couple, and we usually just you know hang out and have dinner and play board games. So we played this on New Year's Eve, and uh, the, the instructions were ridiculously complicated. So much so that when we started it, I was like, "Oh man, this is going to be a bust." But once we figured out how to play, it was actually a lot of fun. Basically, the object of the game is you have to finish painting a picture before. Bob Ross does, and you're not actually really painting. You're using like cards that say, you know, the colors, like you know, alizarin crimson, and all those colors you used to use. And you have to like, you know, get them down before the uh, the metaphorical Bob Ross gets them first. And it's it's silly and very low stakes, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, so yeah, if you're out there looking for something ridiculous to play, look up Bob Ross, The Art of the Chill. Actually, it's The Art of Chill game. Yeah, I think that game's available at Target. Um, Jacob, what have you been playing? Oh, this comes after the holiday season where I break out a lot of board games constantly. It's all only hit the highlights. First, I want to talk about Azul, Stained Glass of Sintra. I previously talked about Azul on this podcast before, which is the um, previous game from the same designer. And Azul was a very unlikely hit last year. It was a huge bestseller, critical darling. Uh, everybody who played board games seriously like bought and played Azul. And it was a game about designing mosaic tiles, which sounds really boring. Uh, but, the, but the fun was that it was a really devious game of resource management and making the right calls and trying to screw people over when they're trying to buy the right tiles. And the sequel, uh, The Stained Glass of Sintra, uses the same central market approach. You still buy your supplies in the same way you buy your supplies in Azul. But instead of building mosaic tiles, you're building stained glass windows. So once you get your supplies, it's, it's a very different game. It's a little more complex. People didn't take to it as quickly with regular Azul. I can, I can teach Azul in five minutes, and people are immediately having fun. Whereas it took maybe 15, 20 minutes for people playing Azul, stained glass of Sintra, to really grasp it and really have a good time with it. But after three or four games, uh, the people who I was playing with uh, think, thought it was as good as regular Azul. So uh, it's very fun. I'm going to play regular Azul first, then go buy Azul Stained Glass of Sintra. I also played Railroad Inc., which is a game, like, if you buy, uh, it's only a $20 game, uh, or maybe $15. It's very cheap. You can, and there's also two sets, a, a blue and an orange pack. You buy both of them, you can uh, have 12 people playing at once, so it's already worth it. And you use a dry erase-esque material board and a dry erase marker. And what happens, somebody rolls dice in the middle of the table and tell you what kind of railroad tracks you have available to you for that turn. Your job is to use what's available to you in those dice to try to connect routes on your board. And what's fun is that everybody starts exactly the same. No boards are different. Everybody gets the exact same dice rolls. The question is, how are people going to utilize what's given them in the most efficient, strong ways? So it's really hilarious by the end of the game to see like someone next to you use the same information as you to build these beautiful railways like they can connect everywhere and 
function perfectly while yours is a total disaster. <laughs> so it's it's really fun. It's really fast, and it's just all about um, taking everybody taking the same raw materials and trying to build something good, and seeing how everybody takes different directions. Lots of fun. I was a big hit with my family. Uh, and Pitch Storm. This is the latest in the um, uh, party game, uh, you know, humor category. I've talked before about how I'm not a big Card Against Humanity fan because a game sort of creates the jokes for you. I prefer games that give you the materials to create your own jokes, and Pitch Storm very much falls into that. You get a hand of cards where it's set up either a group of characters or a plot of a movie, and then one person plays a studio executive, and they listen to everybody else at the table, and the person has to then draw either a character or a plot based on what they didn't draw, and they must randomly combine it with what's in their hand and try to pitch a movie to the studio executive. So let's say in your hand you have a card that says um, a group of uh, a group of rebellious uh, um, college students. Um, then you draw a card that says must escape from a dinosaur island. You must then try to pitch that movie to the executive. And you get some really outrageous, bizarre combinations. Like so that's really so that shouldn't work. You have to try to like pitch it as best you can. But at some point, the studio executive can pause their pitch and throw a wild card in the mix. Say, okay, I really like your pitch. Uh, but can't. But why can't it also have be about a robot uprising? And and give them a card that says must involve robot uprising. Or give them a card that says okay, this sounds good, but it sounds like it should be a trilogy. And you're, what you're describing is part three, which part one. So you have, so the executive's allowed to go in there and mess with their pitch. And it's just about you know trying to first of all come up with a coherent pitch based on these random cards, and then take the studio executive's terrible notes and make it work in your story as well. So if you're like if you're a movie fan, it already has that strong hook of trying to come up with a, a good movie and if you like improv comedy or like being silly or just you know trying to think in your feet it's a really really fun game that's a uh, pitch storm that sounds uh, awesome is that how many players is that i think the base game is five or six but it is no you, you can easily hack it to play as many as you want honestly Sweet. Um, yeah it's, it's it's only like 20 bucks it's really fun i assume it's uh, like one of those party games that the points don't really matter it's just like having yo. fun right Oh yeah, it points don't matter at all. And um, interestingly, it comes with a coupon for um, for Final not Final Cut Pro. Um, what's the name of the screenwriting software I'm blanking on right now, guys? Final Draft. Final Draft. Thank you. It comes with a coupon for Final Draft. At least my, my copy did to get like a percentage off of a copy of Final Draft. Which was so. If you're a filmmaker and want a, a good card game and want a coupon for Final Draft, it's a good purchase. Uh, get the new edition of Camel Up. Camel Up is one of the best board games ever made. It is incredibly simple. Where uh, random dice rolls determine the standings in a camel race, and your job is to try to bet on the winners of the camel race. It's very, very simple, but I've seen it uh, entertain families. I've seen it entertain drunken adults. I've seen it have people screaming and shouting and pounding the table and cheering and like moaning at their losses. And the new edition has brand new art. It has more durable uh, components, and it's just uh, so much fun. Like if it's the only game I can bring home for the holidays and every single person from my, my mom my brother and sister all my in-laws all, everybody will play camel up everybody will enjoy camel up and the new edition is just a, a really beautiful thing previously i kind of had to apologize for the first edition because the art is so ugly in this one uh everybody immediately ooze and awes at it yeah this, this is one of my favorite games of all time i don't have the new edition uh but i highly recommend anybody check this out i think it won the spiel du jour which is kind of like the, the i guess oscars of board games yeah it's close enough I yeah it's very close yeah yeah um it, it's a lot of fun and it has a lot of randomness which normally i would hate but it's just like a whole lot of fun 
Yeah. Because in the game, if the randomness was, it was directly affecting you, that's a problem. The randomness is affecting camels you're betting on. So your job is to try to predict the randomness, and that's what makes camel up such a such a scream the, the play. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned in the last water cooler I was on, I started playing the. RPG Scum and Villainy, which is a hack of the Blades in the Dark system, which is my favorite RPG of all time. This one is essentially build a spaceship, build a crew, go commit space crimes. And I played two sessions with my family so far, and it seems to be going very well. People seem to be really enjoying it. They play as a group of thieves known as the Healers. They made this all up, who pose as a hospital ship so they can get like where they need to go, dress as doctors, and they steal things. And so far, they've, they've sunk on board... Uh, uh, a, a spaceship um, I was hosting a birthday party for a former like galactic hero so they could steal from his personal museum. They had to go raid a compound being uh, taken over by a group of criminals um, and ended up getting no money because it pissed off both sides in the end. Um, pretty much the game is built to increase character stress, put them in bad situations, make them make poor decisions. So right now they're flying this hunk of junk wanted by the police with running out of money and everybody's having a great time because it's all about putting these characters in these you know, pretty much you, you, you're not, you don't, you're not, not going to be Jean-Luc Picard or Captain, or Captain Kirk. You're going to be Han Solo in a busted-ass ship, barely getting by, you know, struggling. That's what Scum and Villainy is all about. Everybody is, it's so much fun. I, if you, it's not as, like, simple as the simplest RPGs, but I think it's more accessible than, like, maybe a, than D&D is. Uh, so if you have somebody who's willing to learn it, Scum and Villainy or Blades in the Dark, which is the, the fantasy version of this, are both excellent. Uh, and... I finally broke down a wall I thought I'd never break down, which is when I decided to start focusing on my weight loss, I said, okay, I'm going to need a hobby. I need something I can focus on, something that can require extreme attention to detail and extremely time-consuming so that I can you know, not worry about food, not worry about eating bullshit snacks. And I decided, I decided what to do after going home for Christmas and found that my brother, my brother-in-law, and my sister-in-law have all gotten into the Warhammer 40K. And <laughs> for those of you who don't know what Warhammer is, it is the only old-school miniature tabletop games where you... You know, you buy a set for an army, and they're not cheap, and they're all come like all come in little plastic pieces. You have to snip them out. You have to carefully assemble them with glue. You have to hand paint them. You have to roll fifty dice to make your turns. You have to uh, if you want to play it right, you need to you need to like um. Create, it, it, it's uh, a lifestyle. It's not. It just is a, a lifestyle. It is, it is. It is. And luckily, my family's doing it. I have some friends who, when I said I was doing it, they said caves. Oh my god, I've been waiting for somebody to do it so I can try it. So if you friends who are buying armies now. So we're all learning how to paint, we're all learning how to assemble models, we're all going to start building terrain, and in a month or two, when we've all got our stuff together, we're going to try actually playing the game. So on my Instagram page, I'll be sharing images of my attempts to paint over the coming weeks, so you can look for that there. And finally, I'm going to tease oh, the fact by, that... By the way, Jacob, all you need to do is learn to get a good wash. If you can get a good wash, like that is, uh, I forget what they call it, but it's like instant talent. It makes everything look good. Yeah, I'm going to go meet up my brother this weekend. I'm going to San Antonio. We're going to spend the day, um, uh, you know, trading painting tips. He's done a lot more than I have already, and we're going to um, hopefully, uh, hopefully get good at it. So I can actually guess Warhammer is very very silly, especially 40k. It's uh, pretty much what if you, like what if orcs and elves, but in outer space with you know giant swords and spaceships and extremely things that were really really cool to 14 year old boys. That is somehow still cool if you learn to embrace it. So, we're, yeah, we'll look for pictures of that and updates on this in the coming weeks. And finally, I'm also going to tease this. Uh, my RPG friends have asked me to put together a campaign of Fantasy Flight Games' uh, really complex, really good Star Wars RPG. So uh, we're already planning that within a couple of weeks ahead. So I'll soon have some Star Wars adventures cooked up to share with you guys. 
Very cool. And Ben, you've been playing some stuff too. I have. Uh, really only Red Dead Redemption 2, which my friend got me for Christmas. And um, man, this game, I, I'm i only, I don't know, like a few hours in. Um, the From what I've heard from Jacob talking about it and, and reading a little bit about it online, like at a certain point, you know, relatively early on, the game sort of opens up into the, a massive version of the world. I'm not there yet. I'm still... Uh, things are still relatively contained, but I've sort of been taking Jacob's advice and just like taking it slow and like looting every body that I come across and not worrying when all of the other game's characters are yelling at me to hurry up and (laughs) do certain things. I'm just like ignoring them and wandering around and sort of uh, taking in the um, breathtaking imagery of the Old West. And uh, it's a lot of fun so far. I am very interested to see how long I'm going to be able to sustain this as a player, because that's normally not my pace uh, in video games. I'm very much like a, uh, a run and gun kind of, you know, I, I like to, to really get in there and, and uh, <laughs> like mess around and, and uh, cause a lot of chaos, but um, I'm trying to, uh, you know, take it, take it down a notch, I guess for Red Dead Redemption two. But um Jacob, what's your latest update in terms of uh, your your playing through that game right now? I fell off during the holidays. Uh, I started as I was traveling. It was much easier for me to bring my Switch and play, you know, much far more bite sized, you know, four or five hour games as opposed to a seventy hour game that required me to be at home. I still like it a lot. I didn't get back into it. I mean, what still what frustrated me at the start still frustrates me, but it's like in terms of. You don't see video games this ambitious ever. I mean, outside of maybe Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild two years ago. Um, I can't remember a game that felt as fully realized. Uh, and its flaws are ones that I, I think make it interesting to talk about. So come back to me in a few more months when I've hopefully finished it. But I think it's just a, a fascinating like swing for defenses that mostly connects. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into it further, and uh, yeah, maybe I'll go play it on my lunch break right now since we're done recording this podcast after two hours. <laughs> yeah, this might be the longest episode of Slash Film Daily ever, so let's end it here. We, we have a lot of episodes coming out this week that are going to be features. We, we have some Captain Marvel interviews from the Captain Marvel set tomorrow. Uh, we'll have our the editor's top 10 movies of the year. We'll finish our uh, movie moments discussion, which I've gotten a bunch of emails and tweets about. Uh, I'll talk about that then. Uh, you can find more of all of our work at slashfilm.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, or life advice from Chris to peter at slashfilm.com. That's peter at slashfilm.com. And please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey, 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 Peter, you can't quit yet. Okay. It's been a few weeks. By by the way, you you know we've uh, gone so long in this podcast that there's a 2% battery on my my laptop. Oh, well, is that enough percentage for some some beautiful beautiful truths? Let's try it. Let's let's, let's go for it. All right. I've opened up the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery. I'm going to go quickly. I've opened up randomly to the failure section, which describes us all. For example, Peter, he's selling furniture for a living. His own. Uh, HT, uh, you, I hear you laughing. You shouldn't laugh because there's a lot less to you than meets the eye. That's that's true because I'm short. <laughs> well, Ben, he hatches a lot of ideas. The trouble is he doesn't hitch them. Uh, okay. Oh
Brad, his boss, keeps telling him, your salary raise will become effective as soon as you do. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's just not fair. And Chris, he can't tell the difference between working up steam and generating a fog. Mmm. All right. <laughs>